0: Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge munsee
1: community. I'm Kalen McPherson. And I'm David Moore. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Elizabeth Press' interview with Mark Speedy of the Troy Chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America about the Troy Council's plan to replace lead service water lines. Then, what do you do if you find a wild animal in need of assistance? Sina Pasila-Hickey speaks with Debbie Phillips from North Country Wild Care. Later on, Andrea Cunliffe speaks with artist Ransom about his work, Up South, Reflections on the Great Migration. After that, we have a live interview with Derek Baranski from Albany Riverfront Collaborative. Finally, Tom Francis speaks with poet, spoken word artist, and graphic designer, Poetic Visions. But first, here are the headlines. An attorney for the state police
0: investigators who accused former Governor Cuomo of sexually harassing her when she worked on his security detail wants the agency to turn over its records and documenting their handling of more than six other harassment cases. The state police are seeking to block release
1: of these records. Upstate Curious, a Hudson Valley and Catskills real estate agents, agent company, has partnered with the American Farmland Trust to help local first-time farmers buy and preserve land for their agriculture businesses. The initial targets are Dutchess and Columbia Counties. A key part of the fund's mission is to provide assistance to farmers who are women, Black, Indigenous, people of color, and/or identify as LGBTQ.
0: The city, uh, the state attorney general, Letitia James, has joined with 13 of her counterparts in other states opposing a proposed by the Texas-based company to ship frozen ethane by rail from Marcus Hook in southern Pennsylvania to the Gulf of Mexico and Canada. New York would see some of these shipments. In Albany, rail safety was a major concern years ago when activists protested so-called bomb trains carrying loads of crude oil to the ports of Albany.
1: The city of Cohoes is still rebuilding Remsen Street after a devastating 2017 fire. The city marked the end of a three-million, three-phase Remsen Street infrastructure project Monday and immediately turned its attention to pushing forward with a 12-million-building proposal. The New York Times reports that the Biden
0: administration is considering reviving the practice of detaining migrant families who cross the border illegally. The same policy the president shut down over the past two years because he wanted a more humane immigration system.
1: Chandler Hickenbottom, a Black Lives Matter leader, was arraigned Tuesday in Saratoga Springs City Court after a summons to charge her with disorderly conduct was requested by the City Public Safety Commissioner Jim Montagnino in response to the February 7th meeting's public comment period at which Hickenbottom accused city officials of not fulfilling promises of reform. That's it for
0: the headlines. On March 2nd, 2023, at the City Council Finance and General Meetings, Troy voted to moving forward with allocating more funds to deal with the lead service line issue. Hudson Mohawk Magazine producer Elizabeth Press, EP, spoke with Mark Speedy of the Troy DSA to debrief the City Council meeting on this topic.
2: In Thursday city council meetings, Troy approved plans to replace lead water service lines. Before the meeting, the Troy DSA put out uh, what you need to know bulletin about Troy's plan and co-chair of the Troy DSA, Mark Speedy, was also present at Thursday city council meetings. Today, we have Mark here with us on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine to discuss what's been happening with the lead service lines. In Troy and the plan for replacement. So Mark, thank you for joining us today on the Hudson Mohawk magazine. Great to be here. From your understanding, explain where the city's plan is at to replace service lines that are made of lead.
3: The city is uh, still in sort of early phases trying to identify all of the lead service lines in the city, but at this past city council meeting, they did make a big step, which is that they... Uh, One, approved funds, Uh, so the use of uh, funds from the American Rescue Plan, as well as uh, the grant money that we had uh, been allocated uh, five years ago but have not touched. They have taken the necessary steps as a city council to approve those for use in uh, replacing lead service lines. They also set out uh, a number of rules uh, for the DPU to follow um, in order to uh, progress with their identification process and with the replacement of lead service lines, outlining sort of the rules uh, of operation for them. Notably, uh, that includes that uh, they will be able to have the right to enter someone's home upon request to check their service line to determine if it is lead. Also, they have the ability to uh, shut off someone's water if they're not complying, if they don't let the DPU agent in, or if, uh, they are, you know, refusing access to actually replace the lead service line. So those are some sort of harsh measures, but in good news, like this is still a, a step forward for them. And, we do have the funds allocated, uh, and a plan to, uh, start, uh, replacing them.
2: So all of this sort of came to light, even though the city got this money allocated in 2018 they got $500,000 which clearly is not enough money to deal with the whole entire problem. of the quantity of lead service lines that are uh, projected to exist in Troy, but this all sort of came to light recently because of public pressure? Or were you involved at all in sort of understanding how this has become an urgent issue five years after the city got the money?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, it it sort of started in uh, some sort of back channels. I think it initially started with uh, a mother who uh, found out that her child had elevated blood lead levels and uh, had a lead service line and was trying to uh, figure out uh, how to Get that managed um and so she starts looking into it and finds some articles from five years ago saying that the city was allocated this money and can't find anything about a program developed since then and it's then that she starts asking around with some other people and you know eventually some community groups uh, come together and uh start to investigate realize what happened and uh start coming up with a public pressure campaign so Timber, the community advocacy group was one of the first ones to put out a statement breaking down the funding that they had received and how other municipalities in the state have already spent all of their funding and even in some cases gotten more grant funding uh, by showing that they were able to spend theirs effectively. Armed with that information, a lot of uh, other community groups got behind it and were able to start putting pressure on the council and the mayor to, to really take action.
2: And so in this city council meeting just this last Thursday, we had this $500,000 in grant money from 2018 the city also, as you mentioned, plans to allocate 1.6 million from ARPA funding or American rescue plan funding. And then they also passed that $1 million that is already part of the utilities department money so extra money they have in the bank account will be used toward this water replacement line in the week before the mayor also outlined that there would be a possible rate increase has that been dropped from the plan do you know
3: so i'm not aware of the current status of that proposal i think it it might be on hold at the moment because they're still trying to determine whether it's actually constitutionally allowed for them to spend city money in that way on replacing lead service lines, which are technically private property. Um, So in the New York state constitution, that's not technically allowed, but we at Troy DSA would really uh, prefer to see more of the funding coming from grant money and other potential revenue sources. We have seen some proposals for increasing pilots. Um, Those are payments in lieu of taxes uh, that are negotiated with nonprofit organizations, so like RPI, Russell Sage, uh, Samaritan, these very large employers in Troy who are not legally required to pay any taxes, uh, they have the funds to uh, you know, potentially contribute to this. Because those are not technically taxes, the city has the ability to allocate those for the lead pipe replacement. Um, so I think that's a really appealing avenue to investigate as well.
2: Great. Uh, Troy, DSA had put out a bulletin uh, with your input of going into Thursday's meeting. What is your reaction now after that meeting?
3: The primary things that we are are trying to focus on as DSA is, uh, you know, one, making sure this uh, this funding and this lead replacement program happens uh, quickly and happens equitably. Uh, their current plan, uh, as they proposed it, stated that they were going to take 15 years. Um, we think that's an unacceptably long amount of time, considering uh, the uh, the pace at which other municipalities have been able to accomplish their uh, lead line replacement programs. The other thing that we really care about as DSA is tenants' rights, though. That is something that has been left out of some of the conversations, particularly because even though Troy is a majority renter city, the city council is a majority owner city council i believe we only have uh, one renter on the city council right now we brought some questions to them that tried to get to the heart of that namely i think the thing that we are most concerned about is a duty to report dpu as of right now if they identify a lead service line in someone's uh, apartment they are not required to report to all tenants in that building that there was a lead service line discovered. And DPU, uh, after hearing that feedback, basically said that they couldn't do that because it's too hard. Um, They don't have a good way to actually identify or reach out to all the tenants in a building. They don't have access to all of those uh, individual doors. But I I think that that is a sort of cynical uh, approach to it. We, We don't think that we can definitely do it for everyone. So we're not gonna have a policy in place to even try. I would really like to see them adding an additional policy that at least says that they need to uh, you know, make a good faith effort to contact all of the uh, residents in a building, inform them that they have a lead service line and the risks of it and the steps they can take to mitigate those risks
2: you gave public comment at the city council meeting on thursday night i heard you mention that you wanted to participate in encouraging community participation in the data collection of what type of service line people have what would that look like and what else does the dsa have planned now related to uh, the lead service lines
3: yeah um great question so um, our plans are, are still in the works. I don't have all the details yet, um, but we are hoping to uh, essentially do a, a public information session uh, at a community organized location and then potentially go canvassing. So taking some uh, flyers and going knocking door to door, telling people, hey, if you haven't checked, if you have not led service line yet, you should do so. Here is the, the form on the website that you can fill out right now to submit whether or not you have one. We'll try to focus on disadvantaged areas, most likely South Troy or North Central um, to uh, really get the word out to the disadvantaged communities who uh, are most likely to be affected by this.
2: Great. Mark, I wanna make sure that I give you the last word. Is there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanna say?
3: This uh, situation is, Uh, A great example of how community organizing can get real change. This was something that the city has been inactive on for five years. And after, you know, effective community organizing, after getting a lot of people to show up to city hall to give feedback, we have uh, some of the fastest action I have ever seen the city council take on anything. And so I think it's uh, really valuable for people to uh, look at this and see it as an example of how to get involved, how to, you know, really push forward on an issue. Um, and if you are interested in uh, helping us uh, do that kind of advocacy, uh, definitely uh, check out uh, Troy DSA. Thanks. We are on all socials as Troy DSA. Shoot us an email into troydsa.org, And we'll also be sharing more information about uh, that a a community-planned event around lead service lines on those as well. So uh, keep an eye out for those.
1: To learn more about the efforts of the Troy chapter of the DSA to organize around lead service line replacement, go to their website, troydsa.org. What do you do if you find an animal in need?
0: Well, North County Wild Care is a hotline of trained volunteers ready to answer your questions, any questions you have. Sina Bazilla hickey has more.
4: North Country Wild Care is a resource for people who have found, I've used it myself, wild animals to get resources from professionals, from volunteers about what to do in that situation. And I'm here joined by Debbie Phillip. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. It's great to be here. So North Country Wild Care, what is it exactly?
5: North Country Wild Care is a member organization of our regional wildlife rehabilitators. It began in 2001 and we have um, about 70 members now. Most of them are wildlife rehabilitators, although some of them are not and just support us in other ways and what we do is we collectively um, support our wildlife rehabilitation efforts. So we're all independent and wildlife rehabilitators, um, folks should know that we are volunteers. We are licensed by the Department of Environmental Conservation and we take in injured and orphaned wildlife to um To care for them, whether we're raising babies to be released or um, caring for an animal while it's injured. Um, And also to be released. That's always our goal is to return all of these wonderful beings to the wild where they belong. So our organization helps the members by a few ways. We support them with supplies that we um fundraise for and and collectively purchase and spread out so the squirrel rehabbers have squirrel food and the raptor rehabbers have frozen mice and things like that that they need to take care of their animals and we also do educational support so we offer classes, some of them are public for people who are interested in becoming wildlife rehabilitators. And we also offer during our monthly meetings, we do some kind of continuing education thing for our our rehabbers to make sure that they're staying up to date. And then we also um, interface with the public. So we do a lot of public events where we teach the public about wildlife and wildlife rehabilitators
4: wonderful thank you debbie and how what is what is your background in rehabilitation and what is your role in the organization
5: um i am a i don't even want to say specialist because i've been rehabbing for four years and that does not make me a specialist we have members of our organizations who who have been doing this for like three decades four decades um But I um, specialize in turtles and uh, mostly turtles that are injured when they're hit by cars on the road. And I also take care of the other reptiles and amphibians, although there aren't too many rehabbers who manage to not get a bunch of other animals in. So um, I raised baby squirrels too, and um, some opossums and pigeons last year. Um, So that's, That's kind of my background um, and what I'm doing in the organization. And this year I am the interim president. I was on the board and our president stepped down. So I'm doing a a little short half term to see I was appointed by the board. And if at the end of this year, I haven't lost my mind and decide to continue, I will run run for the position.
4: So how I found about North Country Wild Care is I was, I believe, a, a, more than a year ago walking down in spring and I found a, a starling on the street and it was too young to have been fledging and so it needed some extra care and I saw it was like from the roof I looked on this uh, Troy Facebook forum. Uh, I think it was Helen's of Troy asking for what do I do? And this is where North Country Wildcare has been a really great resource. And so the process is calling up, getting some advice, and then getting connected with a rehabilitator. Um, could you give us more information on the, the process and how the systems work?
5: Mm-hmm. North Country Wildcare. Um, since 2004 has been running a hotline that is staffed for the most part 24/7. There's always there's always somebody even overnight checking messages and things like that. And when people find an animal, they can call the hotline and the hotline volunteer knows which rehabilitators in our membership, take care of those kinds of animals. And we'll make arrangements to connect the finder with the rehabilitator. And we also have, there's more than 100 right now, volunteer transporters. So these are people who are not rehabilitators. Um, They just help us out by, you know, we have an animal that's here and it needs to get here. Can you, you know, do that driving for us? And if So if the finder and the rehabilitator aren't really close together and we need some help to at least relay an animal to the rehabber, then we'll get a transporter involved. So the hotline volunteers do all that coordinating behind the scenes. But the idea is for the finder to be able to call and know that, you know, they're not going to have to make a whole bunch of phone calls trying to find somebody that one of our volunteers is taking care of it.
4: What are some important assessments when considering if an animal needs human assistance?
5: That's actually something that the hotline volunteers are very well versed in. Um, So it depends on the animal. If there's blood, if it's laying down, not moving, um, if it's in a place where it shouldn't be in the median of the highway or something like that, then those are all like signals that, that we should call um, as when there's babies, like the starling that you found, when you call the hotline, they're gonna ask you, you know, what does it look like? Text me a picture so we can see, because sometimes when baby birds are fledging, they'll hang out on the ground for a little bit and they may be fine, but the hotline volunteer will then say okay this is what we want you to do we want you to get you know step back and watch you know is is there an adult bird coming near this one you know bringing food whatever or they may look at that picture and go no that bird is way too young to be out of the nest you know it's not fully feathered and so you know then they know what to do there so the best way to assess things is really to call the hotline Um, especially if you're not familiar and the same thing, you know, with baby squirrels and things, you know, if you find a baby squirrel on the ground, there's a good chance if it doesn't have any fur that it's, you know, that it really needs to come in. Um, But there are, there are also opportunities sometimes to re-nest babies. So yeah, we always say that the best thing to do is when you find something, first of all, get it safe if you can safely. So, you know, putting that baby bird or a squirrel into a box, getting it someplace warm and and away from predators is fine before you call. Um, but then, you know, then wait to see what they have to say.
4: We only have about a minute left and you mentioned some events. And so I want to just see like, what are some ways for people to get involved?
5: Number one, you can come to our meetings. They're the third Tuesday of every month at the Landmark Motor Inn in South Guns Falls, and they are open to the public for anybody who wants to stop in and find out more about us. We also have a couple of events coming up. We are going to be at the Colony Center Mall on Mother's Day weekend with some of our um, educational birds, and I think some of my turtles are going to So you could stop by our booth that weekend and um, get to know a little bit more about us. And then we also have our big gala coming up in May, which is gonna be in Saratoga. And the website is northcountrywildcare.org. And you can visit that to find out about our events. And you can also call our hotline. The number is 518-964-6740. Good to have on hand anyway in case, Um, but you can also call the hotline if you want to find out about meetings or events.
4: So we're in just the beginning of March right now, so I'm looking forward to talking to you again about the time when we're more likely to be finding these animals and some different ways that humans should be paying attention, um, staying out of their way, or caring. So thank you so much, Debbie Phillip, for joining me on Hudson Mohawk Magazine.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: For more information on North Country Wildcare, go to their website, northcountrywildcare.org. And for those just tuning in, I'm Keelan McPherson. And I'm David Moore. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOC LP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady, and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. Every week we have a history segment. This week we are speaking with legislative assistant Derek Baranski, who also works for the Albany Riverfront Collaborative. We will chat with Derek about the history of I-787 and the Albany Riverfront Collaborative. Welcome, Derek.
6: Thank you, David. Appreciate you having me on.
1: Uh, you are the cu- currently a uh, New York State Legislative Assistant to the Office of Assemblywoman Helene Weinstein, and she chairs the Ways and Means Committee. That's a big work. You are educated in Arizona, and now back to work on a particular project, the Albany Riverfront Collaborative. What is that, and how did that spark your
6: interest? Sure, well, the Albany Riverfront Collaborative is a community-based organization that's um, really working to guide and facilitate conversations about the future of 787, and more broadly, the city of Albany. And we're really not looking to be prescriptive, but we're looking to generate ideas identify and work with stakeholders to unlock albany's potential with this project we have the ability to unlock 92 acres of downtown property that's valuable for the people who live here for people who are moving here and we really want to work to turn what we see right now as a liability into an asset so um Working with the Collaborative, we're really working to, uh, again, just facilitate conversations and um, inspire people to reimagine 787.
1: Last week, we spoke with David Hochfelder, who's working on a social history of the, the area of the 98 acres area that was um, assumed by the state to put in the Empire Plaza and he identified some of the values and purposes of of that project. In, In a way, what the planners saw is what we get, and perhaps you can speak about their value system and the value system that the collaborative brings to the discussion today.
6: Definitely, and I think it's important to understand that downtown Albany in the early 1960s was a very different place what brought us 787 is really really begins during World War II. In 1943, the city puts together a uh, post-war planning committee that in 1946 proposes a riverfront arterial along uh, the Hudson River where the Albany Basin sat at that time. On uh, the mid-50s, the basin with low river traffic, um, the Erie Canal used to originally feed into this area, uh, which was no longer utilized. So the basin is filled in, and you have essentially parking lots existing along the riverfront. So there's really not a lot going on down there at the time. And planners look at what's happening in the city. From 1950 to 1960, the city's population declines by about uh, 5,000 people. Um, Retail vacancy rates in 1962 are estimated to be about 16% of storefronts vacant, um, 6% of non-residential property in the city is vacant. So the city in the 1960s is really changing. And what city officials and planners are noticing is that people are moving to suburbs, Um, suburban shopping malls, park and shops, as they were called at the time, uh, like Westgate, Delaware Plaza are really flourishing and downtown shopping is really declining. Um, And and more broadly, that's what brings us urban renewal or, or questions about, well, how do we facilitate bringing people back into downtowns. And one of those ways to do that is to make it as easy and efficient for people to get in and out of cities as quickly as possible. I think in 1962, they estimated that in the central business district, which is downtown, uh, roughly 110,000 cars would pass through downtown and only about 30,000 were actually stopping at downtown establishments. So a lot of people were using downtown streets to pass through the city as opposed to um, spending time here in the city. Um, That with increased proliferation of automobiles. um, At that time, about 50% of people still took the bus downtown, but it was obvious that cars were really taking over by that time. So um, those were really the values, right? The city was seemingly at that time really declining. Uh, which hadn't really happened before. So planners were really trying to figure out a way to reverse those changes. Could you speak about some of
1: the proposed transportation routes that were rejected or not completed?
6: Yeah, so that's a good question. So what we have today mostly is a completed highway system that was envisioned around 1955, the sort of modern plan came into being, the major changes that we really don't see today are the mid-Crosstown arterial, which would connect I-90 with the thruway. Um, there would be an interchange under Washington Park, um, and that would connect to the South Mall arterial that right now runs from 787 up to the Empire State Plaza, and where the Dunn Memorial Bridges would continue up to I-90. Um, so you really have this system that, again, was planned to facilitate movement as quickly as possible um, through downtown as opposed to going um, going into it. And the Mid-Crosstown Arterial is proposed, I believe it's first proposed in 1950, and by the 70s, um, funding dries up, which is really the only reason why it doesn't come to fruition. But um, this network, again, was supposed to solve the problem of cars simply just passing through the city and facilitate um, people who moved out of the city to come back into the city.
1: Those initiatives were very top-down. The Riverfront Collaborative is seeking more grassroots participatory envisioning process for the future. Could you tell us about your processes and some of the visions that are emerging?
6: Yeah, so we, in 2018, a study was released um, by CDTC, um, I believe DOT, there were a few partners that worked on it, but it indicated that the highway only had a usable lifespan, meaning that it would need major renovations in 15 to 20 years, and that was five years ago. So we really have five, we, 10 to 15 years of, before major renovations are going to be need to be done. And so that begs the question, well, are we going to sink all this money into an elevated highway that, again, doesn't really facilitate people coming into the city, but simply uh, someone once said, uh, come into the city without getting any city on you, which I thought was um, interesting. It's a highway that runs into a parking structure. So we are trying to look at this from a perspective that we have a lot of time to really do a thorough analysis of what could happen. Um, Pat Fahey helped secure $5 million through the Department of Transportation to conduct a feasibility study, which will come out at some point during 2024. And so we have a lot of time to really make sure that we're doing a good job of identifying stakeholders, right? The people in the South End had no voice when the plaza was built. Um, the people who live there now have no say in its existence. And so let's give those people a voice. Let's consult with people who drive into the city. Um, Let's allow them to be real participants in um, what's really fascinating urbanism. I think Albany's a really interesting city and uh, let's allow these people to uh, be participants instead of just bypassing it.
1: We're drawing near to the end of our time. What are the three uh, projects that are emerging as possible futures for the area? You have the canal, the boulevard, and... Trains, maybe? I don't know. Well, you could fill us in on
6: that. Yeah. Sure. The Canalway is a project that um, really is looking at bringing the river into the city as opposed to bringing the city closer to the river. Um, I don't necessarily see... I think all of these are really good ideas, and I think what, what we've been stressing is that we're being very non-prescriptive where we wanna say, hey, this is a vision that could be what occurs, um, but let's get more information and see what's, vo- what's feasible, what's not, and uh, let's work with everyone. I think any idea right now is a good idea. A lot of people say that they'd like to see light rail um, incorporated into somehow, potentially Troy, maybe um, encourage high-speed rail development along the Hudson corridor down in New York City. So I think that, and that's what I think is good about our, um, our the work that we do is, um, The collaborative is made up of many community members from different backgrounds, um, all working for the same thing to really do something good for uh, the city, good for the region. And a quote I really like is of Jane Jacobs. She was an author who wrote The Death and Life of Great American Cities. She, she said, uh, quote, cities have the capability of providing something for everybody only because and only when they are created by everybody. That's beautiful.
0: In the last 30 seconds, can you tell us where people, if they want to reach out to you to hear their voice be heard or can get more information, how can that be done?
6: Sure. We are on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at the Albany Riverfront Collaborative. You can also go to our website and you can find information there at albanyriverfrontcollaborative.com.
0: Thanks again, Derek. We hope to talk with you again in the future. For updates, Uh,
1: again, that's albanyriverfrontcollaborative.com. Opalka Gallery presents a solo exhibition featuring work about the great migration by Ransom. Hudson Mohawk Magazine correspondent Andrea Kunliff spoke with Ransom, who reflected on the impact that migration had on the culture of the United States and interweaving this historic narrative into new paintings with collage, sculpture, and installation.
7: This is Andrea Kamliff with an introduction to the new exhibition at Opaka Gallery, Up South, Reflections of the Great Migration, by the artist, Ramson. I'm with Amy Griffin at the Opaka Gallery. This exhibition is being hung as we speak. Right. And the title of this?
5: Up South, Reflections of the Great Migration by Ransom.
7: Why did you decide to welcome this into your gallery?
5: It all started with Jacqueline Lake Sample and Stephen Tyson from Black Dimensions in Art. They came to the former director, Judy Gilmore, with this idea. When Judy left, I stepped in and we continued working together, and we were thrilled to be able to host this show.
7: So the beginning is the cast of people, the people that the
5: migrated.
7: the migrants
5: yes and then this whole altar piece here at the center is is ransom's family um, ancestors so it's this beautiful installation that we're still still working on yep um i really think we should get jack steven
7: hi
8: my name is jacqueline lake sample i'm with black dimensions and art inc and steven and i are co-curating this exhibit
7: Hi, Stephen. Hi, Andrea. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you again. We spoke, I think, about a year ago. Yes, that's
9: right. Engage show.
7: What inspired you to pull this together with Ransom for this
8: show? Well, um, 2019, we had an exhibit called Illustration in the Word. And the theme of the exhibit was to showcase black illustrators that were also authors. And we had illustrators from New York State. And James is one of the illustrators that my children, have grown up with so we, because he lives here we invited him and he came and he, the show was really wonderful and after the show he approached and said he would like to do an exhibit you know, on migration and he told me about the scale of the pieces you know, and so we said okay we need to go someplace where this can really be shown and so we thought the alpaca would be wonderful because it's an educational institution as well as an institution where you can show art. So this is we came and they said yes, and here we are.
9: Good decision. Yes. <laughs> and so,
7: what inspired you?
9: Similarly, uh, we saw that James was somebody who has uh, not only a stellar career uh, in the area of literature, uh, but he also had something important to say in terms of the migration experience. And we thought that this would be a great opportunity to engage the public at large in the journey of what it means to be an American, a human being, a citizen of this country, that story is something that needs to be amplified and shared so that future generations can understand that story in terms of what the fabric of America is really all about.
7: Such an important part art has to education and to history. Mm -hmm. It's nice to see so many different types of art being represented here. Mm -hmm. It's good. So did... James, his name is James Ransom. James. Ransom. I just know him as Ransom. <laughs> did you select everything, or was it a cooperative experience?
9: I select everything.
7: So I'm going to come over here, and while you're twisting a tree, are you making a tree?
9: Yes, this is a bottle tree, and it's going to be on top of the altar that's over there. Right. Yeah. So we, um, I'm putting the branches into the trunk. Well, thank you. R- There's going to be blue you- bottles hanging from it. Bottles. Bottles. Yes, blue bottles. Okay. Uh, are you familiar with the bottle tree? It's no, usually, you better tell me what it is. Usually seen in the South, you'll see um, bottles hanging from a tree are inserted into tree branches, and they're um, meant to sort of ward off bad luck. The sound that they make, so to a scare away evil. It's supposedly, you know, something from Africa that African-Americans would do in their yards to keep the spirits away, the bad spirits away.
7: Keep sure it'll keep the squirrels away, too. <laughs> yeah, right? probably does, yeah. you've been an artist for quite a while
9: yes I have been yeah, yeah
7: and it's in all types of work
9: yes yes this is my studio artwork I've been working on this show for over two years this is the exhibit up south uh, reflections on the great migration
7: now it's from when? What is? This? oh it
9: started in 1915 the right. 1970s yeah I migrated from North Carolina to New Jersey in 1977 so I guess I'm one of the last migrators to, to come. It's quite a story of the
7: history of this country.
9: You no, know, the show is not to put down the South, because I'm, I'm a proud Southerner and happy that I spent my early years there, and, but really also happy that I migrated North. My whole art career basically was built in the North, so I really appreciate that. There's no disparaging of the South. It's, it's what happened, is what people did, and we're just sort of reflecting on and just bringing up What happened? Just so people can think about their own migration, you know, children hopefully connecting with their grandparents, other people who are coming into this country as well. Recent immigrants come to this country are dealing with some of the same issues that migrants from the South dealt with when they came in the 1940s, 50s and 60s. So I was
7: thinking about this the other day, how this country is like a tree, which is what you're doing, yeah. and that there's so many branches from so many different sure, cultures, yeah, yeah. and how we grow strong together.
9: Yeah.
7: <laughs> and then I started thinking about how this country really should be more like a basket,
9: yeah, I
7: think woven together. Oh,
9: sure, 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 sure. Well, you know, and Jesse Jackson coined a phrase about the quilt. This is really a patchwork quilt. Oh, there you go. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of analogies, you know, it's just, um, soup as well, or, you know, all sort of coming together from different places and make a nice big stew or soup. Yeah, sure, absolutely, yeah.
7: Is there a particular way you'd like people to observe this exhibition?
9: And when you first come in, there's an altar and so the altar is a place where you sort of consider and think about the people who, who you're leaving behind. I find the idea of moving from any place, you know, in this country is built on immigrants, and all of them left their families behind. Cousins, uh, William Cooney you know, hopped on a boat one day, and so... What did his mother think that evening when he, he didn't come home for dinner? I mean, she must have been frightened. What happened to her son? And months went by before he actually contacted his family to tell them where he was, which was in America, where he started his art career. So the altar is there for, it's an altar to sort of think of in terms of sacrifice and saying goodbye to um, what, what was in the South. And then you move through the exhibit and there's different things. Of- it's Black history, but it's also American history. We deal with Everything from lynching, to redlining, to arriving in the city, people leaving the South. So all those things are sort of covered throughout. There's a 100-piece collage on the back wall. I'm from North Carolina. And that piece represents North Carolina. There are 100 counties in North Carolina. And it represents the people who actually left North Carolina going out into the world. So we're not just talking about going north or west, but out into the world, people in the military. One of my dear friends lives in Seoul, Korea right now. Um, so and he's from North Carolina. So so at the very beginning in the center, you see them sort of closely put together. And as it spreads across the wall, they go further and further out. So they represent people all over the world coming from North Carolina. And this is a, um, a neutral observance. There's no looking down or looking up at one particular place, north or south. but was just sort of a discussion about what happened the people who did it.
7: Is there a major inspiration on this? Is there any particular? Sure.
9: It comes from my family. This is really a a family history. My grandmother and grandfather, Tommy and Ruby Ransom, they had 10 children. Nine of them migrated north, and one stayed behind. So I'm also looking at the person who stayed behind and sort of the questions of why people stayed behind. But nine others settled in places like Baltimore, Newark, Patterson, uh, New Jersey, and Brooklyn. It's about them, it's about their children who were born in the North, born in a very different atmosphere than where they grew up, and now their grandchildren who are returning to the South, and they're returning to a different South than their grandparents left, and their feelings about the South are just very different from what their grandparents experienced. That's the sort of the blanket, or the sort of what the show is sort of built around, is my own family history.
7: What caused the migration?
9: Oh, a number of things. Uh, Jim Crow was one of them. When I talked to my family members, it's it was mostly just for work and a better lifestyle. They just wanted to, you know, live in a small town in North Carolina, and they, they had um, a relative who lived up north, and there you were know, more opportunities, more jobs available, especially during World War One, and then again in World War Two. Those factory jobs pulled them, begged them, because people were not immigrating, and they needed workers, so they basically begged Southerners to come up north to work in their factories. So that was one main reason. It was for work and a different life, not wanting to live in agricultural-based region anymore. The idea of working in a factory where you would have some benefits, some retirement, weekends off. You know, farm life It's a tough life, you know. You're working seven days a week from sunup to sundown.
7: Of of course, of course. Um, You're going to be giving a talk as well, aren't you? Yes,
9: I think the artist talk is on March 30th.
7: Yeah, I think you're right. This is fascinating. I'm going to take a peek around. Oh, sure. And then I'll come back and ask you more questions. This has been Andrea Conless speaking with Ramson, the artist, of the new exhibition at Alpaca Gallery running through April
10: 22nd.
0: Up South, Reflections on the Great Migration by Ransom is on view March 7th through April 22nd, 2023, in collaboration with Black Dimensions in Art Incorporated.
1: Now we have Tom Francis' interview with Poetic Visions, a poet, spoken word artist, and graphic designer living in Albany, New York. He has been writing since a young age and performing on stages all over the country, for nearly 20 years.
10: Poetic Visions is a poet, spoken word artist, and graphic designer living in Albany, New York. He has been writing since a young age, performing on stages all over the country for nearly 20 years. On December 4th, 2018, P.V. performed his poem, Be Grateful at the Low Beat. In our conversation, we talked about what inspired that poem, how he uses that mantra, be great, in his daily life, and what it's like on stage getting a reaction from a live audience.
11: Be great full. Like full of greatness, because they're waiting, praying for downfall. Be great full that they hold you accountable to achieve greatness. Be grateful for hateful admiration. Yes, be grateful of greatness for haters who have animosity towards everyone reaching success. Mm -hmm. See, you were taught to be afraid of living, afraid to fall when as an infant you mastered the art of life. You tried to crawl, fell, got up, walked. Fell, got up, walked. Failed, got up, walked. Failed, got up, and walked. You mastered the art of life expecting different results. You mastered the art of life. You tried to crawl, walked, and ran. Pause. Then you were taught that defying gravity is more of an afterthought. Cat your mastery. Put on your thinking caps. Wait, why would you cat your thinking? Haters utter anything to keep you from succeeding. Crabs in a barrel mentality. So be great, full of imagination until you're traveling places while you're standing still. Be grateful to be beautiful. Be you till full. Be you until full. Be the all full original versus the all sum carbon copy. I wonder why all full was defined as a lie. I wonder why lie lies between believe. You were taught to be afraid of the unseen. taught that to pray to, speak to, put never to think to be as creative as the creator of creativity. Taught that you couldn't defy gravity. A separation from massive things. Observing the masses and doing oppositely. Observing the masses and opposing how they think. Yes, this is how you defy gravity. So be great, full of leadership to the masses, rise past belief. To becoming, to knowing, to perfection decoded is called mastery. Practicing your practice to your practice becomes perfection equals consistency. The act of being extraordinary, extra ordinary. So, perfection is simply an ordinary person going the extra mile consistently see i pray out loud to get the message out in returns a voice that sounds like me it's the god in me experiencing he meant humanity so be grateful all full like the sun when he retires or dies for the night reborn at the crack of dawn i resurrect or rise erect like the son of the sun with no shame reminded to be fruitful and create to be given permissible entry between those pearly heavenly gates to co-create that euphoric Feeling leading to shit. passing the baton in acquiescence of your legacy. So be grateful, be shit. joyous to be you. Don't stop. Don't be stop. eternal.
12: Um, a play on words. You know, um, the person that I talk to the most every day is myself. So me and myself have the most elaborate, imaginative conversations. Like I could be driving um, on autopilot and be in daydream. Sometimes I'm so on autopilot, I forget where I'm going. Like I'll, (laughs) I'll end up somewhere else instead of my destination. But that's, you know, how the conversations go. And I record a lot of poetry that way. It might start with a line. I might get a full stanza in there, maybe a couple stanzas. And this is while I'm in traffic, in route so uh, grateful i was just saying the words to myself um and i might have to juxtapose it to another thought about um just wanting to be great and then full of greatness i'm like great grateful and that's how it came out so the poem grateful is like great like being great dash full so being full of greatness um a play on words and obviously you know when you listen over to it um it's a uh insinuating to be grateful like you know being grateful g-r-a-t-e-f-u-l as well so it's going back and forth between those words with being great and being grateful
10: i wanted to know more about how he puts that mantra into practice in his everyday life
12: um i try to stay as consistent as possible every day um I learned a long time ago um, that it's important for our artists to document our thoughts because we get these great ideas and if we don't document them, they're gone. <laughs> they just go in the ethos somewhere, maybe somebody else gets a chance to pull that out of the air, but um, yeah. um, I document a lot of my thoughts and then I always take time to put the thoughts together and connect some dots and that's how a poem comes together. And one or two things happen, you know, um, when you're writing a piece you get excited about, it. you get a rush of energy, that creative juice that flows through you. And it seems like you're not even the one writing with the pen <laughs> anymore. Or um, you're sitting there, you're reading over the piece, you're studying it, and you're just thinking of ways to make it interesting, or at least that's my process. And I guess I could say, you know, that's my a personalized definition of being great as it pertains to poetry. But that's like the the practice that I like to follow um, with being great. Like everything that's put into that poem is how I live my life. You know, um, <clears throat> I practice my poetry in the shower. I practice it when I'm walking, when I'm driving. Like some of the same poems that you've heard for years, they probably sound different to you now. Just I'll emphasize different things. You know, I learned uh, to slow down, to speed it up. Cause I, with 20 years of audio, if, uh, for the ones you've listened to of myself, I'm pretty sure there's some pieces that are like rapid fire. Like I am I could go back and look at some of my pieces like, wow, I was talking way too fast. So always just being a work in progress. And I think um, that greatness gets a chance to show up for three minutes on stage.
10: I've known PV for many years. So I assume that he was born with a pen in his hand. I asked him, when did he start documenting his thoughts and wanting to pursue poetry and spoken word both on paper and on stage.
12: Okay, so um <clears throat> I started when I was 15 in an introductory way. And I started to get gain more ground on it uh I want to say my 11th or 12th grade year in high school and that's when I started to um to write more. Uh I would write and I would read the poems to to girls and <laughs> they loved it. Like, "Oh wow, like can you write me a poem da da da?" So I guess you could say ladies were a um, part of that that explosive energy. Like, yeah, sure. You know, I want to write more, you know, because um, people were interested in it. And then it got into the ears of um, a good friend of mine um, that introduced me to Soul Kitchen. She said, "Yeah, hey, you should go perform your pieces um, at this uh, this place called Soul Kitchen. And I'm just like, I was um, very timid to do that at first because it became something, it was personal to me now I'm letting it uh, um, into a few ears. And now I'm going to be reciting this in front of my audience. It's like, wait a minute. Okay. Um,
10: After all these years performing locally and on national stages, what's it like connecting with the audience?
12: I will say that that's like, um, that's like confirmation of all the hard work. That's like uh, you were writing this piece, you put your energy into it, you uh, you put your best into it and then you performed it for the, before the people and they felt that and the response is you know an applause or a conversation or um wow i really walked away learning something from that piece um yeah like that confirmation initially and then um something to be more honored by myself is getting that confirmation time and time again um we're in 2023 now and i perform some of those same pieces and i still uh, get those same confirmations or those same reactions. So that that means a lot to me. And it's more of a responsibility when I am writing to make sure I'm really um, engaging the people or giving them something real. That way, that uh, confirmation, that relationship between uh, the energy you put into it and confirmation uh, stays strong.
10: As we wrapped up the conversation, I asked Poetic Visions what he's working on now and what we can expect coming up in the future.
12: So I, I, uh, through 2020, I wrote a book. Um, the book is finished now. I have to sit down with a couple folks, get an ISBN number, figure out how I want to market it. And I'm also finishing up an audio book to go with the book. Um, so poetry-wise, there's a couple projects that are on the table. Um, I've been recording a lot more of my poetry um, through video. Um, to really push that presence out there. And yeah, I got different
10: uh, cities that I'm lined up to go perform at. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Tom Francis.
0: And check back next week for a new poetry segment, or or, as always, you can listen to the library of poetry segments on our website at mediasanctuary.org. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Kaelin McPherson.
1: And I'm David Moore, our engineer, Engineer is Kalen McPherson. We thank all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Headlines from Mark Dunley, segment producers Elizabeth Press, Sina Basila-Hickey, Andrea Cunliffe, Tom Francis, and your co hosts, me, David Moore, and Kalen McPherson.
0: We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to hmmmediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand on our website or on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. And remember, radio isn't dying, but it's growing into the future. Until next time.